But as we get to the, uh, the message today, if you look to Matthew chapter 5, this is where we will be continuing our journey through Matthew, and right now the journey through the Sermon on the Mount. We're spending a lot of time on this sermon. Jesus, this is actually one of the longest sermons recorded in Scripture, particularly by Jesus, um, and I believe that there is good reason for that. Um, as I've mentioned before, that this sermon that Jesus is pre- proclaiming to us, he is getting us used to what the kingdom is about, the kingdom of God, the true kingdom. It is a different sermon that the, than the, what the people are used to hearing. At the end, they, we see that the people, as they respond, they are taken back by the way Jesus preached. They're not used to this type of, of message. Um, and so I'm not ashamed to be taking months and months going through this sermon um, and I hope you guys are enjoying it. Um, but I want to ask you a question, because this, this what we're going to be addressing today in Matthew chapter 5, um, starting in verse 21, he really starts to get into some practical details concerning the law. And idealistically, I suppose, um, have you ever been part of a conversation with somebody, typically your spouse, where you're having this conversation, you're talking about some details or you're planning some sort of thing, and in the midst of this conversation, you kind of get the sense that you're not really getting to the heart of the issue that you're talking about. You know, you maybe you feel a little bit closed off, maybe you feel like the, the other, your spouse or the friend or whatever isn't being transparent. Um, about how they, what they really think about what you're talking about. Perhaps you just had a fight about a, si- a situation. Um, people have fights, okay? <laughs> it's okay to accept that. Um, <clears throat> and you come back and you gather yourself and you start talking about the, the, ma- the heated matter again, but you don't really, you still don't really feel like you get to the heart of the matter. Yeah, you might be talking about the details, but... The heart's really not in it. You know, when you, perhaps if you've been in a fight and you expect to come together and kind of reconcile, but perhaps you come together and you don't really reconcile, you just continue talking about the details about the issue. Have you ever been in a conversation like that? Does that make sense? Does that resonate with any of you? Where you just, yeah, okay, details need to be discussed, but... We're not really getting to the heart of the matter. What's behind the details? What's behind what you really think about this issue? And in, the, in Matthew chapter 5, last week, as we talked about, Christ was just teaching that he came to fulfill the law, not destroy it. And we didn't get to this point last week, but in Matthew 5 verse 19, Jesus says... Whoever, therefore, breaks one of these least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I told you last week that we'd talk about this, and we're going to talk about it for a minute here, but this isn't going to be the whole sermon. This is going to be, introduce us to this verse 21 where Jesus starts talking practically. Okay, well, here's parts of the law that I'm going to start talking to you about. And we're going to get to the heart of the matter. 
And Jesus goes on and adds in verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom. So he adds here that if if we want to enter the kingdom of heaven, our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now the scribes were those people who gave their life to the correct interpretation of the law. We think of a scribe as simply somebody who writes stuff. They would copy the law. They would copy it. They would be, they were, they're focused on accuracy. They did those things. They made copies of it because it needed to be copied and distributed so that other people could read it. They could go to other synagogues and other synagogues could have copies that they would teach the people from the law. So the scribes would write it, but they were also considered to be interpreters of the law. Because if you're going to write it accurately, you need to know what it means. You need to know what's being said. We need to know what's being taught. So the scribes were experts in the interpretation of the law. And the Pharisees were primarily, they would interpret as well, but their primary focus was to teach and enforce the law to the general Jewish public. So they were the face of the law in righteousness in society. In a way, they were the gatekeepers of God's kingdom. Because everything that the people knew, heard, or did concerning the word of God in some way could be traced back to the works of the scribes and the Pharisees. The people didn't have their own copy of the scriptures. Everything they knew from the law came from what they were taught in the synagogues. What was interpreted by the scribes, what was enforced by the Pharisees, and also the priests. So everything the people knew could be traced back to the scribes and the Pharisees. But Jesus here is saying that these people, these scribes and the Pharisees are not the true gatekeepers. They themselves have not achieved the righteousness that is required in order to be granted into God's kingdom. Now this is completely annihilating people's hopes of entering the kingdom of heaven. It can resonate with the disciples who then can be saved. How in the world can any of us enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says clearly in 5.19 that anyone who breaks any of the least of the commandments and teaches others to do so is least in the kingdom of heaven. The word break here comes from the Greek word luo, which means to loose or to loosen. It's commonly used to describe setting something free. Jesus says that if you loosen yourself or if you loosen someone else from any form of obedience to God, then you are the least in the kingdom of heaven. This is a to-the-point declaration that the law is still in effect. Jesus did not obliterate the law. The law is still in effect, every word of it. And we saw last week that much of that law that's still in effect is fulfilled in Christ. But the requirement of needing fulfilled was always in effect. The substance of the shadowy things of the Old Testament that we talked about last week that Christ fulfilled are still active, but they're active in Jesus Christ now. We still find Christ to be our Passover lamb, even though we don't celebrate the Passover as the Jews did. But in finding Christ to be our Passover lamb, we are walking in accordance to that law. We still look to Jesus as our only priest even though the priesthood of the Old Testament is done away with. But we still, and we still rest in the blood of the new covenant that Christ sacrificed, even though we don't offer sacrifices anymore. So in Christ, through faith in Christ, we are still following the law, 
when we, by faith, find Christ to be all of these things for us. It is not that it's no longer applicable, it's that now it's all funneled through the person of Jesus Christ, because he is the one who came and fulfilled all of these things and became these things for us. And Jesus declares in in Matthew 5.20 that you have to be more righteous than the Pharisees if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this language, you have to think like a Jew here, which is hard because we're not Jews and we're not living in uh, AD 30. Entering the kingdom of heaven was pretty unfamiliar to the Jew because the Jew was already under the assumption that they were part of the kingdom because they were of the lineage of Abraham. And John 8, chapter, John chapter 8, verses 39 to 40, reveal this false confidence. If you want to look there super quick, we're not going to sit here forever, but it would be good for you to see this. In John chapter 8, verses 39 to 40, Jesus, well, first the <clears throat> people say, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. Then he goes on to say, You did your deeds of the fa- you do your deeds of the do the deeds of your father, talking about the devil. Yeah, they may have been of the lineage of Abraham, but they were not Abraham's children. And Jesus here, when he's talking to these Jews about the possibility of the fact that they're not part of God's kingdom. That's, that's unheard of to them. That's not what they were taught. They were taught by the scribes and the Pharisees that they were God's children because they were the children of Abraham. So they've never heard something like this before. And Paul follows up this concept in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 by saying, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we see that even this this kingdom of heaven, this this lineage of righteousness, of election, now it's consumed, it's funneled in, not through Abraham, but through Jesus Christ himself. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Even though you and I are not Jews. Somebody in here might have some Jewish descent. I don't, as far as I know. Most of us in here are not Jews. But we are Abraham's seed in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is packaging all of this up when he presents to the Jews the implication that there was still something yet to be done if they wanted to be counted counted as citizens of God's kingdom, which is something they've never heard before. Yeah, the Gentiles still have something that they need to do in order to be considered God's people, but we... I mean, we're Abraham's people. We don't, there's nothing left for us to do. We are God's children. We are God's people. Heirs according to the promise. But Jesus here is implying that, no, there's still yet something to be done if you want to be part of God's kingdom. And that we know on this side of the cross, it's not as shadowy to us because we see the scriptures about salvation coming through faith in Jesus Christ. Now having the fullness of scripture, we know that this citizenship is gained through faith in Christ's sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, for the adoption as sons of God, which we talked about on Wednesday, adoption. And now we continue with these things in mind into Christ's teaching. At this point, Jesus is embarking on a journey to expand 
the people's understanding to see the fullness of what is behind some basic scriptural teachings. In Ezekiel, it's prophesied that God would come to them, forgive their sins, replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and give them a new heart and a new spirit, put his own Holy Spirit within his people so they could truly follow the law. And here Jesus is giving us a glimpse through many examples in the Old Testament teachings throughout the rest of this sermon, one of which we will touch on today, how somebody who is truly God's is given the ability to truly obey the law from the heart and not simply boasting in external allegiance to basic basic, systematic lists of rules, which is what they have been taught. So if you want to look here, Matthew 5, verse 21, we see this first example that he pulls out of the Old Testament. <clears throat> I'm going to read verses, five, verses 21 through, through uh, 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. Go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly, while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hands you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. So, we first are dealing with this commandment of, you shall not murder. And this is coming from a very straightforward, easy to understand commandment from Exodus 20.13 in the list of Ten Commandments that every Jew was very familiar with. Very straightforward. This is, I mean, if you want to memorize a verse and feel good about the fact that you memorized the verse, memorize Exodus 20, 13. You shall not kill. Okay, recite it with me. All right, you shall not kill. Good. All right, we got that down. Okay, all right. So that's the point of the sermon. You learned that you should not kill. Now we're going to go by our way, have some lunch. No. But in a sense, that's kind of how the people viewed this. Very simple to understand. Don't kill people. Don't murder. Perhaps you memorized it as a child in the old King James, thou shalt not kill. Okay, got it. Moving on. <laughs> I understand. There's nothing more that needs to be explained. But then Jesus goes on for several verses and explains it. Explains things that are packed into this commandment that the people were not taught. <clears throat> it's easy to understand that we shouldn't murder. Only God has the right to take life, okay? That's not hard to understand. In fact, murder was the first sin that's recorded after the fall of Adam and Eve. Cain killed Abel. So we can see a clear example straight from the beginning of Scripture. Murder is wrong. But Jesus ventures out to offer commentary on this commandment that society was not used to hearing. It's not so much that Jesus is adding to the Old Testament as he was expanding the people's understanding of how we need to view and interact with people according to the law. The elements Jesus is touching on were always the desire of God for his people. And Jesus is showing us that the commandment, do not kill, 
is tightly packed with much more. So in verses 21 through 22, let's read these again. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. So Jesus first is addressing a rudimentary element of the commandment in that he establishes that all of life has value. He forbids man not just from ending life, but also from judging a life to be worthless. Now, just to, to explain here, some of you are reading from a different translation. And in verse 22 it says, Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Some of your translations don't have that phrase, without a cause. In fact, most translations don't have that phrase, without a cause. Now, regardless of you know, textual criticism, I'm not going to go into all that right now, the teaching here is the same whether you include this or not based off of the context of this passage at large. Whether you're angry with your brother with a cause or without a cause, these principles that Jesus is teaching don't really change. And what, he is, what probably could be the situation here without a righteous cause, because the, right, the Bible does teach, be angry, but sin not. So there is a way to be angry in a righteous way. Jesus got angry righteously with the Pharisees. Jesus got angry righteously in the outer courts of the temple when he was flipping over the tables. In those situations, he had a cause. It was a righteous cause. But Jesus is warning us here, if you're angry with your brother without a righteous cause, be wary, okay? Because there can be some serious implications here. So here we're talking about anger, hatred, bitterness. And we'll go through these step by step. Solomon reveals in Proverbs chapter 26, verses 24 through 26, if you'd like to look at those with me. Proverbs chapter 26, that hatred, this type of anger with our brother, itself is a package that is full of of all kinds of depravity. We often quote, you know, the love of money is the root of all evil. Well, that's not the only root of all evil. If you are angry and bitter against somebody, that's also the start of all kinds of depravity. And Solomon details that for us here in Proverbs chapter 26, starting in verse 24. He who hates disguises it with his lips and lays up deceit within himself. When he speaks kindly, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred is covered by deceit, his wickedness will be revealed with the assembly. Have you ever known that there is somebody who's mad at you? Okay, maybe you had a, a quarrel with somebody that you never really reconciled with, and like the next day you're talking to them, maybe in a group, and they say something nice about you. Or they say something kind. How do you, what do you think about that? How could they say that? after the argument that we just had. They just drilled me, called me names, they put me down, and here now, because there's other people around, they're talking nicely about me. You can easily see how hatred can be covered up by deceit. <clears throat> and he is saying, Solomon says here, and I want, to look, I want you to see this, for there are seven abominations in the heart of one who is full of hate. And those seven abominations... 
Solomon details in chapter 22 of Proverbs, if you want to look at that real quick, as being... Let's see here. I think I wrote down the wrong chapter here. If you have a problem with anger, that anger is revealing of many other issues. And it would, be do, it would do us well to see these. Um, but in the meantime, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Says, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. And when Paul commands that we don't even eat or associate with somebody who is a reviler, he is saying somebody who is a scoffer or an insulter. Those people are not supposed to be fellowshipped with as brethren. Yeah, what? Is Proverbs 6.16. Proverbs 6.16. Okay, so you don't have to turn there. Proverbs 6.16 shows us those seven deadly sins. These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that despises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speak lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. All of these things... Roots of all of these things dwell within the heart of somebody who has a problem with anger, with his brother, unrighteous anger. You can look at these and you can focus on these another time. Search your heart. Do these things dwell within you? And Paul takes this off. And why do you think Paul is saying you need to not associate with somebody who's got an anger problem? Because that anger problem is the root of all sorts of depravity. It's a sign that there is a much deeper heart problem than simply, oh, he just got angry. Man, he must have just felt really hurt by that. I mean, we've all insulted somebody, right? I mean, everybody here has been angry about something silly. And Jesus is dealing with these people in a harsh way. When he says that if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you're in danger of hellfire. I mean, don't take it from me. This is what Jesus is saying. Associating this, associating us and our anger as being just as condemnable as murder itself. That sounds harsh. Especially considering the fact that we've all been angry with somebody without a righteous cause. We've all spoken evil of somebody, probably in the recent days, in the form of either direct confrontation or passive gossip. But the point of this is this. Hatred, bitterness, and resentfulness and resentment reveal something within us that is contrary to the gospel. Resentment, anger, bitterness 
they reveal something within us that is contrary to the gospel. And if it resides within us without being addressed, if we place our stance against someone in anger for unrighteous reasons and feel absolutely no desire to reconcile, then the love and mercy of Christ simply cannot abide with that. 1 Peter 2.23 says, When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus, when he was being unjustly punished, he didn't come out against them, even though he could have, but he did not. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 Paul is telling us to take this mind of Christ and go and live likewise. He says, But brothers, go to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? Okay, why do we get angry with people? Because they wrong us in some way. They say something about us that's not true or it's hurtful. They do something that causes loss. Paul is telling us, take this mind of Christ in you. Would you rather not just suffer loss than to make a spectacle of your selfish ambition? Trying to get that other person to right their wrong in the public eye and that before an unbeliever as your, as your judge? Where Jesus himself continued entrusting himself to him, God, who judges justly. But yet we go before the unrighteous rulers against our brother, trying to get something from them, trying to get them to pay restitution. When Paul is clearly telling us, if you are following Jesus, if if Jesus' love and mercy abides within you, it would be an utter failure for you to do such a thing. Would you not, should you not rather, as Christ followers, those of us who are supposed to be living like Jesus Christ, should we not rather just accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? That's the heart of Christ. Not as a doormat, but as a proclaimer of mercy, but as a lover of men, not as a lover of self. Not as one who's constantly ambitious for his own gain. James chapter 3. If you'd like to look here. James chapter 3, verse 14. James starts by saying, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For there, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. See that he's resonating right with Solomon. If you have something against somebody else, envy or bitterness, there, everything, every evil thing can come from. Verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
This is the heart of the person who's following Jesus, not somebody who's constantly coming against someone for their own personal gain, even when true hurt was caused. No, but it's rather the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Chapter 4, verse 1. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. Again, here we're not being like Christ who is entrusting ourselves. We are not entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly. We are entrusting ourselves to whatever restitution we can get from somebody else, regardless of the harm that is caused to the image of Christ or to that other person. Verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you, not, or do you think that the scriptures say in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud. Okay, the proud is resisted. But he gives grace to the humble. The humble. Not the self-seeking, but the humble. And then down in verse 11, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. Again, coming back to this sermon that Jesus is teaching about anger. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. So Jesus is teaching back in Matthew chapter 5. Let's come back here to Jesus' teaching that murder is not the whole issue. There are many, many things packaged up in this law that the people were not being taught. And he's saying, if anyone is angry with his brother without a cause, shall be in danger of judgment. Whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council, and whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. So now the language here, I'm not going to go into every, every little detail, historically, grammatically, but what he's saying by Raka, you fool, what he's saying is, if you in your mind are diminishing the value of somebody else, you are just as responsible for this law about murder as the one who actually takes a life with a gun, with a knife, with a sword, or whatever. Because the law is not just about taking life, it's about, you do not get to be the judge of somebody's value. That's not your place. And if you are making comments in your heart to somebody else about the value of somebody else, then you are just as responsible to this law as the murderer. Because the law, thou shalt not kill, it's about human life. It's about the dignity of life that God gives a person, not something that you get to evaluate. And when we take that evaluation into our own hands, we are just as responsible for this law as the murderer. Then he goes on, and he gives a couple examples in the rest of this passage, verses 23 to 26, of how, how to deal with the roots of murder, unrighteous anger, and hatred. Look at verse 23, or verse uh, 
Yeah, verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And in this pass, in this example that he's giving, he's giving a picture of somebody who's taking perhaps a lamb, perhaps a bread offering, perhaps a, a pigeon, whatever the offering might be, he's bringing it to the temple to sacrifice it, to give it for whatever reason. Maybe it's for sin, maybe it's, for, maybe it's a thanks offering. But the point Jesus is making in this example here is that relational cleansing is more important than ceremonial cleansing. Relational cleansing is more important than ceremonial cleansing. Jesus is focusing on us and our problem with hating someone that we have a problem with. And if you, I don't know if you noticed this, but in the first two verses, he's dealing with you and your anger problem. Okay? But now, he's kind of pulling a, uh, who is my neighbor, on us. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? The parable was told by Jesus in the answer to a question, who's my neighbor? But then Jesus doesn't actually answer that question. He flips it on its head and tells a parable that makes the point, you just go be a good neighbor to everybody. In this example, Jesus is doing something similar. Instead of giving examples about how we, the offended, need to process our anger, he flips it upside down and now he's talking about the person who actually did the offending. He's placing the burden of reconciliation on the one who has, who has performed the wrongdoing that broke a relationship. This is, however, not Jesus letting the offended person off the hook, okay? So the, it's easy for us, okay? Have you ever been hurt by somebody and you're just sitting back waiting for that person, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to let them, I'm not going to let my anger to them go unless they come and they apologize and they make restitution. Have you ever been in that situation in your heart? You know, somebody hurt me and I have the right to be angry with them until they come make things right. That's not what Jesus is allowing here. He may be placing the burden of reconciliation on the offender, but that does not let us off the hook. That does not give us the right to continue in anger. Instead, he is kind of sitting a husband and a wife down in a counseling session, and he turns to the husband and says, you need to love your wife better. And then the wife is smiling, yes, he's on my side. But then he turns to the wife and says, you need to show more honor to your husband. He's saying both of you are responsible here. Both of you have a job to do. Both of you are part of the fix here. But now Jesus is turning the attention from the one who is angry with someone to the one who caused the person to be angry. And we must see the personal significance in this example. Because you see, it's a, it's a person who is he's offering a sacrifice just as the law commands. He's doing a good thing. He's doing what he's supposed to do. But we need to see the point Jesus is making by saying, no, leave the gift there. Don't offer your gift. Go reconcile to your brother. It's more important for you to go reconcile to your brother than it is for you to go and offer the sacrifice according to the law. And he's making the point here that our tendency as human beings is to focus on the ritual rather than the relationship. This hypothetical man in Christ's example would be perfectly fine offering his gift on the altar. Perhaps 
he had a sin offering, perhaps it was a thanks offering, whatever it was, but he would have been perfectly fine just going on with his business, with his ritual, giving little thought to the fact that he's involved in a broken relationship. Oh, that'll take care of itself. Time heals all wounds. I'm just going to do my rituals and carry about my business. And then you bring this into the modern day. Weeks by weeks go by. We come to church. We submit our offerings into these offering plates. We sing our worship songs. We prepare our Sunday lunch. We take communion. We listen to the sermons. We even come on Wednesday. Perhaps we attend a Bible study on Thursday. We read our Bible and pray every day. So we grow, grow, grow. We pray before meals. We pray before bed. And perhaps a number of different times throughout the day. Yet even if we happen to be praying for a person that has an argument with us, we're not even compelled to actually go to that person and seek to reconcile. We go about our piety not really liking that somebody's mad at us or that we hurt somebody, but content nonetheless. Content enough to be able to practice our Christianity without letting the relational burden interrupt our weekly rituals. When was the last time you didn't come to church because you needed to go talk to somebody that you had a broken relationship with? Or does that like, oh, no, I can't do that. I have to go to church. When was the last time you even thought that that might even be an option? That I, I can't go to church today because I need to deal with this problem that I have with this person. Does that even strike us as an option? Or is that like, no, no, I got to go to church because I have to. That's what Christians do. Christians go to church. And keep in mind that in Jesus' example, the person's ceremonial cleansing in this passage was actually obedience to specific laws. Yeah, we are supposed to go to church. The Bible says to go to church. And I can't take you through Leviticus and Deuteronomy right now to illustrate the different kinds of sacrifices that could be going on here, but if a person needed cleansing from sin, it was legally required to bring offerings to the priests to sacrifice. This was a vital part of his obedience to God in the law. This was not a choice, this was a requirement. And yet Jesus is saying that if you have something between you and your brother... Put that relational eruption at the front of your priority. The priority is not the ritual. The priority is the relationship. The people at this time were very well versed in ritual. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes were really good at. That's all they ever really learned from these people is, here's the rituals, here's the rituals, obey the rituals. Here a rit ritual here, ritual there, everywhere a ritual. Old MacDonald had a ritual. E-I-E-I-O. The people knew the rituals. They were taught them all the time. And even though the Pharisees had replaced some of the biblical rituals with some of their own, they were still teaching the good and necessary Old Testament rituals that the people needed to follow. They were still doing it. But this example that Christ gives alters their understanding of ritual, of law, the things you have to do versus the things that you need to do. Our relationships must come first. Hatred, bitterness, envy, and strife must be addressed because they condemn you just as much as murder. And look at the second example here. <clears throat> Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hangs you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. 
Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. So he, he brings another example of somebody in a legal dispute, something that you could actually be sued for because you hurt somebody in a way that caused real loss. And in this example, Jesus is teaching us, own up. Own up to your mistake. We have again inferred that there's a broken peace between somebody else in this passage. Jesus is saying to us, it is in everybody's best interest if you just own up to what you did. In this legal dispute, you have a short time in which you can reconcile with your brother before it now becomes a legal battle where the relationship probably will never have another chance of being restored. Because once you enter into that courtroom, now the reconciliation is not by choice, it is by legal force. The point here is, in a courtroom, you could win out and not have to pay anything. It's possible, it happens all the time. But did you hurt your brother? Did you hurt your brother or your sister? (laughs) Then we need to own our responsibility to them regardless of what the judge has to say. Even if there is a chance that we could get let off scot-free, we should not want to if there has been real wrong done. We, as God's children, as followers of Jesus Christ, ought to be of the mind to own our mistakes and right the wrongs that we have caused to somebody else. It's not about money. It's not about who is justified and who is not. It's about making relationships right. This is the heart of a Christian. Anything less is carnal and not of God. Is that your heart? Is there something where you hurt somebody, somebody has lost lost something because of something you did, but you're like, well, it blew off. I didn't, you know, I didn't have to do anything. What yay me? I didn't really get in trouble. That's not the heart of Christ. That's not the heart of a Christian. If you've hurt somebody, you need to own up to that. My question in this message is this. Do you have a problem with bitterness, anger, resentment, gossip, slander? Have you let things come out of your mouth that have hurt somebody else? Your husband? Your wife? Your fellow church member? A relative or a friend? The important question now is, are you ready to go to that person and reconcile? Are you ready to do that? Or are you currently in a position of being hurt by someone else? And you're not even entertaining the option of forgiveness. Rather, you're slandering them to anybody who will listen. Or you're resenting them in your spirit and you feel justified in doing so? Or are you willing to choose to forgive, love, and pray for them? If not, then Christ gives you a warning. Tend to your soul because you may just not be the Christ-seeking Christian you always thought you were. This is not me trying to threaten you into righteousness, but Christ gives us this warning Let me read it again. Whoever murders will be in danger of judgment, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Jesus is giving this to us. 
Psalm 66.18 says, If I have cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And I don't want you and me to abide in a position of silence between us and God, or a position of brokenness with each other. We must come together in unity with Christ, in unity with each other, so that we might, in one accord, bring glory to God, magnify Jesus Christ, edify each other, reveal the glory of Christ to our community. And we can start by, one, forgiving, two, reconciling. If you want to write down two words, go and do this, the two words are forgive, reconcile. It's not enough to just let time heal wounds. Forgive and reconcile. And in this, you fulfill the command, love your neighbor as yourself. In this, we take upon ourselves the heart of a true Christian who seeks to really follow the law of God from their heart, not just from a ritual. Yeah, I, I doubt that anybody, this isn't confession time, but I doubt that anybody in here has killed somebody and disobeyed the law, thou shalt not murder. But have you broken the heart of that law? Do you stand in opposition to somebody, judging their value as a person before God? Do you harbor resentment and bitterness and anger in your heart against somebody and feel just in doing so? Nobody is just in doing so. So go from here. Forgive and reconcile. And follow this heart of the law that Jesus Christ is teaching. I thank you, Lord, that you have given us clear instruction on what it's like to be a kingdom person. That what it's like to live in your economy where you value peace and gentleness and meekness more than you value gold and silver and precious stones. Where you pay the, <clears throat> the great price to bring salvation to our souls. Not so that we can go and just spend our life serving our lusts and our desires. But you've given us the opportunity to be your kingdom children and participate in the economy that you establish. And Lord, as we've learned about forgiveness and reconciliation here today, I pray that we would go to the exchange, trade in our passions and our lusts, and receive that which is truly valuable in your sight. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.